You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. You guys, the Bible is obsessed with the idea of the unity of humanity. The unity of humanity. It's how the beginning of this story starts. God forms humans in the image of God and creates them to live in unity with one another, unity with God, and unity with creation. It's this amazing unifying story. And man and woman are this kind of microcosm of what is supposed to be universal human interaction, just supplementing one another in unity with one another. It's this two-person picture of what all of human life is supposed to look like. And then at the end of the story, in Revelation, we hear of a heavenly city that comes together, this unified people, every tribe and tongue singing together one song in each of their own languages. This amazing, diverse unity. Millions of people together at the end of this story, unified with God and unified with each other and unified with the world. The story goes from unity to unity. That's the whole picture of the scriptures. But the Bible also speaks of a tragedy that befalls humanity. It's the tragedy of division. That for whatever reason, at the start of things, humans decide, well, actually, I think we can define unity on our terms better. God, I don't need your picture of unity. We can define unity on our terms. And so they separate themselves from the source of life, and what ends up happening is division. Humans become inherently divided from one another. They can't get along with each other anymore. Enmity exists between them. And the Bible indicates that that sort of division, that sort of enmity now characterizes humanity. There's something in us that's just incapable of quite getting along, incapable of quite forming the unity that we know we're made for. And I think inherently, deep down, we all kind of realize this and know this. Think about it. If you put two little children together in a room and leave them unsupervised, what's going to happen? They're going to hurt each other. They're going to say something angry to each other. One person and probably both of them are going to end up crying, right? They can't seem to get along. And we like to think that that's just a childish thing, but adults do the same thing. You put a couple adults in a room, and eventually they're going to offend one another. Eventually, they're going to divide from one another. There's this inherent spiritual reality in us that we can't quite seem to create the unity we're made for. And there's actually a story in the scriptures that talks about the culmination of this. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. Some of you may remember this if you grew up in the church. It's after division has broken into humanity. There's a, a group of humans that say, you know what? We think we can create a unified society on our terms. We don't need God to do that. We actually can do it ourselves. So let's get together and let's build this society together. And it goes terribly. Eventually, they can't even speak to one another. They speak right past each other. They don't speak the same languages anymore. And so therefore, they're cast all over the earth. And they build their own societies that are constantly working against each other. That's the story of the scriptures, that humans are divided from one another, constantly working against one another. It's the fragmentation of the human race. We are fractured people, unable to create a society on our own that builds the unity we were made for. And that sort of world, a world that's constantly fragmented, a world where we're unable to hear each other or listen to each other, understand each other, what does that sound like? Social media? Our current political climate in the US? We live in a Babel world right now, right now. This is saying something that's universally true in all of human society. There's a poll that was released at the, the uh, end of the election cycle in, in 2020. 
uh, start of 2021. This poll reviewed different voters and their thoughts after the election. And this is striking. Based on this poll, 52% of people who voted for Donald Trump said that they preferred that red states, Republican states, secede from the union and build their own country. And lest you think that it was just Republicans who did that, Democrats had a similar thing. 41% of Biden voters said that we want Democrats, blue states, to secede from the union, form our own thing, build our own unified society. 40% of voters in both parties said, hey, let's abolish the checks and balances that exist in our country. We don't need them. 40% were for that. Said, no, let's, let's just put ourselves in control and power. And 75% on both sides agreed that the other party is a clear and present danger to them and their family. That's the Babel world that we live in right now. We're unable to communicate. We're unable to hear one another. And we want to form our own thing. We're supposed to be the United States of America. We're supposed to be this grand picture of human unity. And we've never been. It's never happened. This was supposed to be a project here in the United States of forming a unified society. And all it is is Babel. Slaves versus free and men versus women and pro-life versus pro-choice, communists versus capitalists, Suns fans versus Lakers fans, it never stops. We're always divided from one another. And we're just one expression of what's always existed in human history. There's something in us that's inherently divided. And we know it's wrong. We long for unity. And thankfully, we learn that in these pages, God has not left us in Babel. God has stepped into the division so that we might be freed from it, so that we might be liberated from it. In a world where humans are constantly separating themselves, constantly creating enmity, we learn that God steps in and says, I can bring unity, the unity that you were made for. Partner with me again, and the unity can come. And that story of God bringing unity, that's actually what this whole sermon series has been about here at Midtown. We're calling it Christianity Uncomplicated, but we're looking at that Apostles' Creed that we just all read together. And the creed is this ancient statement of Christian faith that billions of Christians for thousands of years have affirmed this is the core of our faith. And in that story, we're learning over and over again how God has stepped into the division that we create amidst one another and brought life, brought unity through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. And today, we learn how God is reversing Babel, how God is reversing the divided societies that we live in. He does that through the next line in the creed, the Holy Catholic Church. So let's dig into the scriptures and see how God does this. If you have a Bible, uh, turn in it with me to the uh, book of Acts. It's the fifth book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. Uh, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 2. We're reading verses 1 through 13, and then skipping ahead to verses 37 through 47, uh, if you'd like to follow along. We're also going to have the words on the screen behind me. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound, like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites 
residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. And skipping forward to verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far away everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. It's a logistical nightmare. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I say that's a logistical nightmare because, man, 3,000 people? What if we had 3,000 people right now? What would we do? It's amazing, amazing what the the Spirit does in that story. Uh, You guys, when we jump into Acts 2 here, uh, the narrator is kind of playing a pronoun game with us. If we just start here, it can be a little confusing. He says they. They were gathered in Jerusalem. And if we haven't been familiar with what's happened before this, we think, well, who's the they, right? Who is he describing? Well, the they here are Jesus' closest disciples and followers. These people have just experienced over the last few weeks an incredible, remarkable revelation that Jesus Christ died and rose from the grave and that he showed himself to them in his physical body for weeks and taught them and met with them and ate meals with them. They have seen something utterly transformative in their lives. And Jesus, when he was with them during that time, told them that because of his death and resurrection, restoration and unity was coming to the world the divisiveness and brokenness of the world was going to be healed in him, and that they would be the community through which that began. That the Holy Spirit would form them into a new community of people that reversed Babel, that reversed the divided world, that people would be united across every worldly division. And then Jesus ascended to heaven and said, the Holy Spirit is coming, wait in Jerusalem until it comes. So naturally, with this sort of claim, they're waiting. Many of them are probably like, oh, I don't know what else to do, right? He rose from the grave, like, I got to stick with this guy. Whatever is happening, I want to be a part of this. And so they wait, and they wait, and they wait for weeks. And now finally, in Acts chapter 2, what Jesus said has come true. The Holy Spirit has come into their midst, and a new community is formed. This is the birth of the Holy Catholic Church. And I know that when I say those words, they can be a little confusing, right? Especially for those of us that aren't as familiar maybe with the Roman Catholic Church. We think of Catholic or associate it with Roman Catholic, but that's actually not what the word is getting at. We actually see what each of these words mean, holy, Catholic, and church, in Acts chapter 2. It becomes pretty clear once you dig into the text. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to unpack what we mean when we say holy, 
what we mean when we say Catholic and what we mean when we say church together in the creed. So first, what we mean when we say holy. We often think of this word in kind of negative terms in our culture. We think of people who feel like they're holier than thou, right? We think of people who are particularly morally elevated over others. And so oftentimes we think of it negatively. But the reality is that picture of holiness, that idea that holiness is morally elevated, that's actually not the core meaning of holy. It's a part of it, but it's not the core meaning. Holy actually has a deeper, more core meaning. To be holy means to be set apart for a specific purpose. To be set apart for a specific purpose. And I'll give you an example. I have something holy in my car right now. Uh, it's a pair of Kobe Bryant's shoes. Because I wear them to play basketball, I've set them apart for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is to get buckets. That's what I do in my Kobe's. Now, these Kobe's are not particularly morally elevated, right? And they don't actually have moral agency. So I can't call them holy in the other sense, but I can certainly call them holy in this sense, that they've been set apart for a distinct purpose. When we call the church holy in the creed, we're saying that this is a community of people who have been set apart for a distinct purpose. And that purpose is what Jesus intended for the community, that they would be a group that brings unity to the world, that brings restoration to the world. And here's what's particularly radical about the church's holiness. It has very little to do with their moral excellence. That's an important thing for us. We aren't made holy because we're particularly great or special. Notice in verses one through four here, what forms the church to be what it is? What happens? The Holy Spirit comes, right? They aren't made holy because they got together and they were just saner and more moral than everyone. They weren't uh, great because of what they had done. They weren't saying, hey, let's get together and form this new project for unity and restoration based on our excellence. The only reason they were able to get together is because of the Holy Spirit. And the only reason this happens is because God is in their midst. So when we proclaim the church is holy, we aren't saying, look at how great we are. We're saying, look at how great God is and what he's doing in this ragtag group of people that otherwise wouldn't get together and that otherwise isn't all that spectacular. And the scriptures go to great length to communicate, us, communicate to us that this is true, that this is what the church looks like. The Holy Spirit works in the lives of broken people over and over and over to bring unity and restoration. That's the whole gospel message. It's that God comes to us to make this happen. In between the text we read today, uh, verses 5 through uh, 13, we see what the Holy Spirit does, and then 14 through 36, we see a huge sermon. We didn't read it together, but that sermon is preached by a guy named Peter, which is fascinating, because just weeks before this, Peter denied Jesus. Peter said, nah, I'm out on this Jesus thing. And he's the one that the Holy Spirit comes and preaches through. He's the one that starts this whole thing. Did that happen because Peter was particularly morally elevated or holier than thou? No. It happened simply because he was receptive to the Spirit of God working in his life. He was receptive to saying, oh, it's not actually about me, and I need Jesus' forgiveness in order to shape me. And when that happens, Peter becomes a cornerstone of the early church. He changes the ancient world for good. And 3,000 lives are affected just on this day. It didn't happen because Peter was so great, friends. And look at the people who surrounded Jesus. Look at the people who were closest to Jesus. Who were they? Smelly fishermen, lowly day laborers, Crooked tax collectors, malign sex workers. These are the people that Jesus said, yeah, these are my people. Because these are the people who know they're in need, and these are the people that can receive the Spirit and allow that Spirit to govern everything they do. 
These are the ones who can be receptive to it. And Jesus, in his own words, when he describes the church, he uses an interesting analogy uh, that should be kind of offensive for us, honestly. Uh, he calls us sheep sent amongst wolves. You're all sheep. Have you ever seen a sheep? They're soft. They're defenseless. By no means are they zoologically impressive. There's nothing impressive about a sheep, and yet Jesus says that's what these people are. Jesus is saying that the restorative power of the church isn't in its worldly strength, isn't in its moral impressiveness. It's instead in its weakness, its willingness to rely upon God to work in its midst. And so the holiness of the church, the set-apartness of the church, is its willingness to let the Holy Spirit move, to allow the Holy Spirit to govern everything they do. One of the primary problems with the American church in the last few decades is its insistence on maintaining worldly impressiveness in its structures. It creates unhealthy power games and consumeristic worship and coercive evangelism and people elevate charisma over character because that's how the world works. And that's how you build, uh, well, a company. That's how you build an organization here. The unfortunate part is that when the church does that, it actually becomes weaker. It ends up perpetuating the same Babel dynamics as the rest of the world. When it believes that its impressiveness is the thing that it needs to display, it actually loses sight of the mission. It becomes an anti-Jesus movement. And those methods look way more like Babel than they do like Jesus. And I say that because I know many of you in this room have in one way or another been hurt by a church that looks a lot more like Babel than Jesus. You've ex experienced pain or abuse, ugliness in and around the church. And if that's you in any form, first, Thank you for being brave enough to set foot inside a church. Because I know that's a really hard thing to do. It's a big deal that you're here. We're thankful you're here. But secondly, know that this is true. Whenever the church is actively perpetuating Babel dynamics, divisiveness, self-elevation, it's actually the failure of that church to be set apart. It's the failure of that church to be holy as it was called to be. It's the failure of that church to receive the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to shape it. And our hope is that this community gets to be an invitation to you. If you're looking for a place to call, if you're looking for a place to follow Jesus, we hope that the transformative power of the church can work in your life here in this place. We hope that you feel a place to step in. Because when the church lives its calling as the lowly ones, as the ones who are constantly welcoming the other lowly ones in the world, it becomes revolutionary. It becomes something that we've never seen before in human history. And suddenly, that set-apart community, that elevated community, starts to look more and more like Jesus. They start to become holy in the other sense, not just because God calls them that, but because they look more like God. And the strongest divisions can't break apart that sort of church. There's a reason that empires have come and gone in world history, friends, and the church has remained. There's a reason that the Romans are gone. There's a reason that the British Empire no longer spans the whole of our world because those things come and go. That's Babel. Eventually, it gets destroyed. The church doesn't, because the church is unified by something other than how impressive we are. Their strength relies upon something otherworldly, a unifying and restoring force. And so true transformation, true unity in our world, it's only possible when we entrust in the Holy Spirit. Babel can only get unworked when we allow the Spirit to work in our midst. And that's actually why we use the word Catholic in the creed to describe the church. This word Catholic, like I mentioned before, many of us think the Roman Catholic Church, but notice when we say it, it's actually not capitalized. It's not a proper noun. 
The word Catholic existed before Roman Catholic existed. And it's not actually referring to any subset of the church. The word Catholic actually well, just refers to universal. That's what the definition is, or according to the whole. By claiming the existence of a Catholic church, of a universal church, we're referencing the diversity of tradition, the diversity of expression, the diversity of language that contributed, contributes to the followers of Jesus all around the world. That means that any community that affirms these central truths of the creed, any community that affirms the gospel message, is part of the universal Catholic church. The church is anywhere that the spirit of God is present, bringing the gospel. And we actually see that Catholicity, the Catholic nature of the church, right in the middle of Acts here, verses 5 through 13. Look what happens. The authors list over and over all sorts of different people. It's kind of like a little excessive. It feels that way when we read it. All of these countries that we haven't heard of, all these places we haven't heard of, they list them all. Why? Because they're emphasizing that this new community, this new unifying force is one that transcends all of the divisions of our world. These are people in Acts 2 that are divided by nationality, that are divided by language, that are divided by temperaments, that are divided by interests. They have very little in common and no other reason to get together, and yet they do. They get together because the Spirit of God is unifying them together around the message of Jesus. These are people that are made brothers and sisters by the work of the Spirit in their midst. And this Catholic nature, there's a couple different components to it that I think is important for us to remember. First, the church is Catholic in its diversity. Every single one of us comes to the door of this church with certain markers that divide us from one another out there in the world. You're male or you're female, you're Republican or you're Democrat, you're an immigrant or you're a native-born. We all have divisions that we carry into this place, but those divisions here no longer define us. We are now defined by our unity around the risen Jesus Christ and what Jesus has done in our lives. That's what brings us together. There is no social barrier, no social division that can prevent the unity of Christ's people. Every single one of you is a brother or a sister to the person sitting next to you, independent of what you've brought in here, independent of what's different about you out there. The church is tearing down the walls of Babel just by meeting just by getting together, they are undermining the empire mentality of our world out there. And that means there's no imaginable human person that can't be a part of this new family. There is no imaginable human person that can't be a part of this new family because none of those divisions matter anymore. All that matters is this, what Jesus has done. And so the church now embodies this new powerful reality, unified diversity. Every one of you is unique. You have certain things that characterize who you are, and yet you're also aligned with the other people around you because of your trust in Jesus. There's diversity and unity in this place. There's a theologian named Esau Macaulay who speaks of this. Uh, this quote is, I think, a, a powerful picture of what this looks like. He says, God sees the creation of a community of different cultures, united by faith in his son, as a manifestation of the expansive nature of his grace. This expansiveness is unfulfilled unless the differences are seen and celebrated, not as ends unto themselves, but as particular manifestations of the power of the Spirit to bring forth the same holiness among different peoples and cultures for the glory of God. What a picture. 
The same holiness, the same set-apartness can be seen in people who are radically different. You can travel across the globe to people who don't speak the same language, who sing different songs, who do weird things, who might smell weird to you, and you can be aligned as a brother or sister with those people because of what Jesus has done. We've seen nothing else like this in world history that can bring together the whole of our globe around Jesus. That's what it means when we say we're Catholic. We're Catholic in our diversity, but we're also Catholic in our message. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ is never, ever addressed to just one particular social group or to just one particular type of person. It's actually addressed to every imaginable human being. And this has been true since the beginning. This is a, a curious thing, but when you think about it, it's really radical. Jesus' words were spoken in his day in Aramaic, which would have been the, the dominant language of the Jewish people at that time. But the texts that we have are, are in Greek. The texts, the original copies that we have of the scriptural texts are in Greek, which means the people who wrote these things down said, this message needs to get to as many people as possible. And Greek was the language that more people spoke at that time. So they're like, let's move this from Aramaic to Greek. We don't care what linguistic barriers might exist. We have to get this message to new people because those linguistic barriers don't divide us from one another. This message is Catholic. It's universal. It's for every person. And that's rare in world religions. In Islam and in Judaism in particular, they place heavy importance on the linguistic and cultural factors that it takes to become Jewish or Muslim. And they say you have to adopt a lot of those practices. In fact, for Muslims, if a Quran isn't written in Arabic, it's not the Quran anymore. They say it's actually something less. It's reduced from the Quran because you need the original language. You need the original cultural assumptions. And you need to adopt those if you're to become this faith. Christians don't say that. Christians will translate the Bible into whatever language makes sense for you as long as the message gets across. And so the church is Catholic, friends, in the midst of all of its different languages, in the midst of all of its different expressions. We bring the message to every possible person. That's the whole point of this faith. There's no language, there's no culture, there's no background that can stop the gospel from reaching all people. So that's what we mean when we say Catholic. Now, finally, what do we mean when we say church? There's two things right at the end of Acts chapter 2 that we learn about the church. First, the church is not a place, but a people. Notice, it says the, the, the church here devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Do you, do you see anything there that says, oh, they chose a location and they started meeting at that location every week for an hour and a half? No, that's not how the church worked, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching wherever they were. That's how it worked. And they were scattered all over the place. It wasn't about a location. It wasn't about a place. The church is the gathered people of God, wherever they are, being molded and shaped by a spirit. And it is important still to notice that they gather, right? They aren't individualized. They aren't separated. They are gathered together, which means the essential marker of the church and its people are their togetherness. They do this work alongside one another. And that's a critical thing for us to remember especially in a highly individualized world. We live in a world that has so assumed that the church is a place we go on Sundays that we actually have created a dichotomy between faith and the church. We've said, well, I'm a Christian, but I, don't, I mean, I don't really go to church that much, right? It's not a huge thing for me to go to, because church is the location, but Christianity, that's something different, right? The biblical authors actually don't create that dichotomy at all. They think that being a Christian means you're part of a community of Christians that are becoming more and more like Jesus together and participating in the unity and restoration of all things. In their mind, being a Christian meant being committed to that sort of community, 
They don't picture Christianity and the church as separate things at all. That doesn't exist for them. And I want to be really clear. Individual faith is still necessary. You don't get saved by going to church. That's not how it works. You do have to know Jesus and allow Jesus to work in your individual life. But when that happens, it sends you into a community of people where that can grow and where that can flourish. There is no dichotomy between being Christian and going to church, being a part of a community. There's a, a good quote from a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor in Nazi Germany. He's somebody who has a lot to say about community because community was uh, being shut down left and right. He was risking his life to do church in community. And he said this, let him or her who cannot be alone beware of community and let him or her who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings just showing up to church, that's what will happen sometimes. And one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. We need both of these things. We need the individual thriving relationship with Jesus to come alive in a community of people who are unified together. So the church, friends, is not a place, it's a people, and that people gathers. And we learn, secondly, here, that the church is always sent Notice it says in the text again that this church had all things in common, that they sold their possessions, that they distributed to all as any had need, and they spent time in their homes. Is he saying that they showed up, chose a select few songs that they sing together that make sense of the message, listen to one person speak at them even when it's hot or sweaty in a room like it kind of is here, and then from there they were the church? It says that they were out and about. They were in people's homes. They were beyond a specific room or place. The church was always sent out, and they were doing things. They weren't just sitting and hearing a message and believing ideas. Those ideas shaped everything they did. They gave food to those who had need. They didn't consider anything of their own their own. They gave those things away. Friends, the church is always getting out into the world, into the everyday lives of people around them. And they're doing that because they have a message of unity in a world that still looks like Babel. They have a message that the world needs, which means the church is never an end in itself. This right here is never an end in itself. You can come to this every week, and that's great. I love to see you here every week. It's important to gather. But what's way more important to me is that you go out beyond this place and get to proclaim the gospel message in whatever you do. That's what it means to be the church in most of our weeks. I've got a, a visual that I think can help with this, and it, I, I think will be a helpful graphic for you guys. I want to show you uh, the difference between the gathered church and the scattered church. So this right here is the gathered church. And this is what we do for one, maybe two hours a week if we're really, really special, right? Uh, if we meet in a community group or on Sunday mornings. And this gathered church, you can see we're all kind of huddled in a corner. And we encourage one another. We learn from one another. That's a great thing, right? But notice all of these other dots out here, well, they're far away. I mean, right now, all of us are sitting in this room and not able to have a conversation with our coworkers, not able to love our neighbors, not able to give a meal to someone who needs it. We're all gathered together. And this is a really important thing because this reminds us who we are. This reminds us why we do what we do in the world. But this is only two hours of our week. Look at what the rest of our week looks like. We're scattered. And that's about 110 hours of your week in comparison to the two that you spend here. This is where a vast majority of your time is spent. And look what happens. When we're all scattered, every single dot on this page can be reached by one of these dots just adjacent to them. This is the same number of dots, but they can reach considerably more people when they do this well. 
When they go into their city, when they go into their location and love their neighbors, it can bring the gospel in powerful, transformative ways. And real unity can come to all these little pockets of Babel all around them. This is what the Acts Church looks like. And so if you're looking for Midtown Presbyterian Church and you're looking for its people, you can show up here on Sunday mornings, but it might be a better idea to like look around the city. Because the church is going to be in kitchens, it's going to be on golf courses, it's going to be in offices, it's going to be in classrooms and hospitals and operating rooms. They're going to be packing food for neighbors that need it. They're going to be working at Hope Women's Center here. That's what the church is going to be doing. You don't have to show up here to see it. I hope you do. But you can go all around the city and see this church at work. That is what the church is. It's always sent to the world. Friends, you all have entered this place as products of a Babel world. You've been told that you are divided from your neighbors, divided from other people for one reason or another. And the world tells you that that's how it works, that that's how it should work. But that's not what God says, and that's not what this church is. This church is a thing that breaks down those barriers, that is a unifying force, that is holy, called out by God to bring unity and restoration to the world, that it is Catholic, breaking down every barrier, and that is the church, a gathering of people who are sent every week to love their neighbors. When we say these words, they aren't just rote religious language. They are packed with powerful meaning. And today, when we choose to trust in that, we choose to leave this space and go into a city and entrust this reality, we can see real unity, real transformation happen in our midst. It's been happening for thousands of years, and it's going to keep going long after any other empire, long after any other Babel falls. This is a powerful reality, friends. So let's be a part of it. Let's participate and take our next step, whatever that looks like. We're going to have a congregational meeting right after this service that will show you what we're up to as a community and how you can be a part of that. We hope that you stick around because when we practice this holy Catholic church thing, it can bring radical transformation to our world. Let's pray. 